0: Let's open it with a word of prayer. Great God, your name is excellent in all the earth. What is man that you are mindful of us, the son of man, that you visit us and dwell in our midst. We ask that as we study the truth of your existence, in the unity of your being, in the trinality of your persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in your attributes and in your works and commands and promises and purposes that you would uh, cause these truths not to be the knowledge that puffs up but uh, the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness that we might be conformed to your character even partakers of the divine nature being holy as our Father in heaven is holy, enable us to understand your existence, to be able to defend it, to be able to refute atheism in its various manifestations and to its varying degrees. Uh, Enable us to repent where we have become atheists in one way or another, in the way that we think and speak and act in this world, this world that declares your glory and which was created to bring you honor and praise. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing our study of theology proper and uh, also our study at the outset here of God's existence. We've considered God's existence... In its exegetical aspect, examining a relevant passage of Scripture, we looked at Hebrews 11.6. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we've considered that uh, saving faith requires a belief in God, but it requires far more than a belief in God, And when we say, I believe in God, at the beginning of the Apostles' Creed, uh, we're saying something that is at the heart of the Christian faith. We saw from a dogmatic or systematic theological perspective, uh, as we sought to summarize the teaching of Scripture as a whole, we saw that God's existence is distinct from that of His creatures, that God's existence is a personal self-existence, so God is personal, even tri-personal, and he exists in and of himself. I am that I am, Jehovah, uh, the the transcendent God who is and was and is to come. We saw that God's existence is not merely a reality, but it is a necessity. God's existence is absolutely necessary, and it's a necessary precondition for our understanding all that is, it's a necessary from an existential standpoint of being an existence. Apart from God's existence, holding all other existence together and causing all contingent existence to, to, to be, uh, nothing would exist. Uh, metaphysically, again, epistemologically, in terms of knowledge, ethically, in terms of right and wrong, God's existence is necessary for these things to be exi- to exist or even to be understood. We saw that God's existence is clearly revealed and universally known through creation, the external world that God has made, through conscience, uh, the testimony of the human conscience to the difference between right and wrong and feelings of guilt and accusations of conscience when we've done wrong, and Uh, The the, um, commendation and exoneration of conscience when when we're innocent human conscience testifies that there is right and wrong and therefore a God of righteousness and truth human cognition, human thinking uh, in and of itself testifies to the existence of God we saw that in various ways and then for nations that have been exposed to the gospel, Christianity as well shows God's mighty works of redemption throughout history, his ongoing work of building his church and saving sinners, uh, and that entire history of the Christian faith and the Christian church cannot be adequately explained apart from the fact of the resurrection of Christ, the man whom God has raised up and appointed to judge the living and the dead. So we also saw God's existence is sinfully suppressed, Romans 1, 18 and following, suppressed in unrighteousness by the unbeliever who refuses to open his eyes and his ears and receive the testimony of creation, conscience, cognition, and for many, even Christianity. Uh, We saw that God's existence is not only defensible, but also inescapable, uh, whether it's Charles Hodge articulating that perspective down through Van Til, Bonson, God's existence can be defended, but also it can be shown that apart from an understanding of God's existence, uh, logic, morality, and uh, even the scientific method would be impossible. Uh, So we looked at various arguments, the cosmological argument, saying that the effects that we observe in the universe presuppose a supreme first cause— Secondly, the teleological argument, which points out the reality at face value, even acknowledged by atheists, uh, that at face value, there seems to be intelligent design. And this argument would then argue from intelligent design to an intelligent designer. Thirdly, we saw the ontological argument, uh, the notion that uh, if we can agree that there is such a thing as imperfect contingent being, like ourselves, we can think of the many imperfections of our human nature, how it could be better and more perfect, and uh, how we're contingent rather than necessary. That concept presupposes the notion of a perfect necessary being. Otherwise, how could you evaluate imperfection if there was no standard of perfection? And so you start filling out the, the fullness of what that perfection would be, and you end up with a being who uh, must exist, this is the argument, Uh, the notion that imperfect, contingent existence implies perfect, necessary existence, and of course, if that existence is necessary, then it must exist. Uh, Anselm was most famous for introducing this argument uh, among the Reformed theologians who have a high view of this argument. You have William Shedd and Herman Witsius in his lectures on the Apostles' Creed. So uh, that one's a tough one to get our minds around, but, um, but that's what it is. Fourthly, we saw the anthropological argument, pointing out that you simply can't account for man's innate natural tendency in every nation under heaven to gravitate toward religious worship of a divine being or beings. Of course, there's idolatry to pollute that and corrupt that, but why is it that man is always seeking to go beyond the natural world and there's this natural inclination toward the supernatural? Uh, That uh, is the anthropological argument based on what appears to be the natural inclination of human beings and human nature. Fifthly, we saw the, the argument that focuses on the inescapability of God's existence, the transcendental argument, which asserts that apart from God's existence, there is no transcendent basis for the beliefs which all of us, even atheists, must presuppose in order to make sense of anything. In order for an atheist even to argue against God's existence, he's going to appeal to what? He's going to appeal to logic, something that cannot be justified on an atheist. in an atheist universe, on atheist presuppositions. There can't be some immaterial standard of critical thinking that exists apart from the physical, tangible world for the atheist. That's not something that comports with his worldview, and so he's borrowing from the Christian theistic worldview in order to justify the existence for the logic that he uses in his argument to try to disprove Christian theism. The same thing is true when atheists appeal to morality. They try to point out things in the Bible that they think are evil and wicked. And as Christopher Hitchens said, God is not good. But you see, for Hitchens to presuppose that there's a standard of good and evil, right and wrong, uh, righteousness, unrighteousness, that presupposes a worldview where there is an absolute standard of morality. And so his argument against God Presupposes a standard of morality that points back to God. It's self-refuting, and shows that even the most uh, clever atheist can't actually make arguments grounded in things that are, are inherent in the atheist worldview. Because in the atheist worldview, it's just matter in motion. There's no such thing as a mind. There's no such thing as uh, laws of logic or of morality. There's no ought, there's only is. And so how are you going to win an argument if all you can do is observe the way things are and not actually prove your points with uh, logic and morality or the scientific method? Uh, The uniformity of nature, the assumption that the future will be like the past, that if we do a study today, uh, that that study that the, the uh, elements on the periodic table that are interacting in that scientific study today will interact the same way tomorrow and next week and next year and 50 years later. That idea of the uniformity of nature, that it's not just a chaotic universe where the elements in the periodic table are changing their properties every single minute, okay, you're assuming the uh, uniformity of nature. How can you do that as an atheist? So you're using science to disprove God, but your science is based on a presupposition that could only be true if there was a sovereign God upholding the uniformity of natural properties. So this is a very strong argument to show the inescapable nature of God's existence. Now we move to the polemical portion, addressing relevant questions and controversies that relate to God's existence. First, we ask the question, what is the difference between evangelism, apologetics, and the believer's personal faith and assurance of God's existence? So we have these three categories, evangelism, apologetics, and assurance. This is very important because people that get all excited about apologetics can sometimes not understand the sense in which apologetics needs to stay in its own lane and not begin to encroach upon these other categories. Christians that get too hepped up on apologetics will often see their their pursuits in the realm of evangelism or their experience in the realm of assurance, uh, they'll find these things to struggle because apologetics has become too important and it's It's begun to bear a weight in their life that it was never meant to bear. So let's understand these uh, important distinctions. So evangelism is the positive declaration of God's truth. We see that in the book of Romans, sin, salvation, service. Here's why we need a savior. We're all sinners, okay? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, okay? but then salvation, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we declare the good news of the finished work of Christ and of the saving benefits that he bestows on all who trust him, and we invite and call and command people to trust in Christ and be saved, and then we urge them Therefore, by the mercies of God, to offer themselves as a living sacrifice, and to walk in His ways, as an act of gratitude and as a fruit of His sanctifying grace. So evangelism: sin, salvation, service. Now obviously that last category of service, it's not as always as pronounced uh, in evangelism uh, as sin and salvation but uh, when we think of evangelism and discipleship, often in, in the gospels, Jesus and John the Baptist and others sort of combine these things where they're urging people to be justified by faith, but they're also pointing out their sins and practical areas where they need to bring forth the fruit of repentance. So all these things are in some way relevant for evangelism, but again, it's this positive declaration of God's truth. And, and in our day, because we have the scriptures and the people around us have the scriptures, it's going to be focused on scriptural truth. Paul goes to Athens and he, he brings a message of sin that involves some of the aspects of the light of nature. And there's nothing wrong with that in some sense. But uh, again, the, the, the lion's share of his ministry, especially in the synagogues, was preaching about sin and salvation with an emphasis on the scriptures. And so that's especially in our culture where we have the Bible. We need to be using the Bible because it's faith that comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You might use natural arguments to illustrate sin, but certainly when you transition to salvation, it's gotta be straight out of the Bible, the good news of Jesus Christ, that positive declaration of God's will concerning salvation. Secondly, apologetics. Apologetics involves offering a defense. 1 Peter 3.15, this is uh, the battle cry of apologetics. You've probably heard this many times. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So apologetics is not so much the positive declaration of sin and salvation and perhaps service, but it is offering a defense for the faith and the hope of the, of the Christian. People see that we're different, they ask why, and we explain it to them. We give a defense. Uh, apologetics can also be, you know, of the, of the sort of approach that says that the best defense is a good offense, you see that with the transcendental argument. Preemptively dismantling alternatives and objections so that you can demonstrate that actually Christian theism, uh, the existence of the Christian God, as it were, is, uh, it, it is a reality by way of the impossibility of the contrary. And so the, tr- the transcendental, the presuppositional apologist is not just defending, but preemptively dismantling all alternatives and all objections to show the impossibility of the contrary. But still, uh, you know, you can say the best defense is a good offense, but it's, it's still, in a sense, defense, as opposed to evangelism. And then you have faith and assurance, the believer's faith and assurance. How do you know that the Bible is true and that Jesus is your savior and that he's gonna return and judge the world. How do you know and have assurance of what the Bible reveals being true and of your own salvation? How do you know these things? Uh, And it's very important to use the analogy that we would use uh, with respect to the identity of our parents in ordinary situations. If you ask a child, how do you know that your parents are your parents? Okay, there are some extraordinary circumstances where children may not know their parents, but ordinarily, if I were to ask you, how do you know that your parents are your biological parents? How do you know that? My brother used to joke with me when I was a kid, I was the youngest, and uh, he would he would say, "Oh, they left you on the doorstep or something," you know. Um, he said, ooga and Buga." These uh, anyway these, 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 these uh, Neanderthals left me on the doorstep, and that's, you know, and here I am. How did I respond to that? Well, at the time, I'm not sure, I responded with rational arguments, but um, how do you know that your parents are your parents? How many of us have actually tested that with a DNA test to make sure that the parents who raised us are our parents? probably very few of us probably maybe none of us okay we know that our parents are our parents even though we haven't scientifically tested it Uh, now if we were to prove that to other people or in a court of law we might use a scientific test if we were to engage in a sort of apologetic to defend the fact that yes you know, if there's a question of a will or of an inheritance, am I really the child of of these individuals? Yeah, we might use that to defend that claim in demonstrating it to others, okay, but our apologetic method in defending that is going to be very different from the way in which we know for certain that we are the children of our parents, and uh, I'm not going to get into the to the reasons we might have. I mean, we can see that perhaps the physical resemblance if Know, of our biological parents. We can see that, we can, we can see uh, personality traits that are similar, um, we, but the fact of the matter is, we believe our parents and we hear their voice and we know that it's our parents and we don't need a scientific test to tell us that. And yet it's, it, it would be utterly absurd to suggest that we were unwarranted in believing that our parents are our parents just because we didn't take the DNA test, right? So understand, evangelism is the way people are ordinarily saved. We're not, we should not make it our primary strategy of bringing souls to Christ to get them in a deep philosophical discussion and immediately jump in with apologetics, even to the point where I've seen it, some presuppositionalists. It's almost like they will try to conjure up a worldview for the other person well, you're a Buddhist, so all is one, right? And, or you're an atheist. And they try to like feed them with the, the belief system that they then want to refute. And it's very sometimes very unnatural and very unhelpful. Our first port of call should be evangelism. Declare the truth. If people are going to get defensive and raise objections against it, fair enough. Then we can come in Right, We've got our sidearm of apologetics to come in and take care of business with some presuppositional reversal moves or whatever. But we, we focus on the positive declaration. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And apologetics is something that we have on our tool belt if we need to use it. But some people get so obsessed with apologetics that it's almost like their evangelism really begins and ends with transcendental arguments or cosmological arguments and things like this, which never end up addressing the fact that the unbeliever's suppression of the truth is not primarily intellectual, it's moral. He's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and he needs to hear about his sin first and foremost and his need for a savior, not merely to indulge him and almost agree with him that his problem is intellectual but you need that balance. Now, you also don't want to be rude and obnoxious when he brings objections and refuse to go to apologetics and instead just say, well, you're just suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. You know, you're just evil and wicked and you're, you, you know, the Lord's given you over to vile affections and darkened your understanding. No, we, we want to deal with people in a reasonable way and that's when we go to apologetics. So you have some people on the other side that all they do is bash people in the head with the Ten Commandments. And I'm not saying Ray Comfort does that, so don't get me wrong there. He's pretty good about this, but with a balance. But there are people that that's all they do is just bash people in the head with the tablets uh, from Sinai and stand there on the street corner attacking, you know, somebody wore an earring or somebody's immodest or, you know, it's all they do. And they never actually reason with people where they're at and try to show uh, how the Christian faith dismantles their objections. Uh, with respect to faith and assurance i don't need to tell you that your faith and assurance needs to go far beyond apologetics you if you're again if your assurance that your parents are your parents is based on a dna test there's ordinarily there would be something wrong with that okay you should have a if you're a believer you have a relationship with god he's your father you interact with him daily he speaks to you in his word you have the life of God in the soul of man. Christ dwells in your heart by faith. The Spirit's conforming you with a family resemblance through the marks of grace. And um, these are important things to keep in mind. Uh, I don't have my uh, larger catechism in front of me, but if you look at larger catechism question two, uh, there's a question there about how we know that God exists, and it says that, you know, we know it by the light of nature and the works of God and all of these things that we mentioned creation, conscience, and cognition but it's through the Spirit of God bearing witness by and uh, with the Word of God that we have that full assurance. So understand full assurance is actually an experimental, experiential, intimate reality uh, of our relationship with the Lord. It's not that when we go speak to the atheist, that we're just saying, well, I'm a Christian because of a logical deduction, and no, uh, we need to present our arguments as those who have a personal relationship with this God, and we want to introduce you to him, and he's a wonderful heavenly father, and Jesus is, is a beautiful savior, and the Holy Spirit is our comforter and indweller, And but we have these arguments, you know, and we're going to dismantle your worldview. But those things are important, faith and assurance at a personal level. Secondly, do atheists exist? Do atheists exist? And of course in some sense you could say no, because all atheists really are suppressing the truth of theism in unrighteousness. And so what is RC Sproul, you know, he says uh, God doesn't believe in atheists. And that's true. Uh, but obviously there, there are aspects of atheism that people profess and aspects of atheism that people put into practice, and we want to consider some of those. First, professing atheists. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, he may not be saying it with his lips, but he's saying it. He's professing it. Uh, we talked about this. He's not actually making this determination primarily on the basis of his mind but on the basis of his heart, which includes his mind and his will, his sinful desires, which don't want there to be a God. But he's still professing it by way of self-deception and the suppression of the truth. So, yes, we can say there are no atheists, but we can then speak of Richard Dawkins as an atheist. Okay? There is a sense of which, in which he is a professed atheist because he deceives himself and suppresses the truth. Secondly we speak of practical atheists. Uh, Stephen Charnock, in his treatment on the existence and attributes of God, has an excellent chapter or sermon on practical atheism. I highly recommend it. It's extremely edifying, very instructive in many ways. But practical atheists are referred to in Titus 1.16... Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So, Psalm 10.4 says those, it says, all their thoughts are that there is no God, or God is not in any of their thoughts. Uh, this is a practical atheist, somebody who may profess to know God, but in their works and in their thoughts and in their priorities and purposes and desires. It's as if there was no God because they leave God out of these things. And uh, as I said, Psalm 10 is helpful. There's a couple other portions there that are are helpful here. Psalm 10, verse four, the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. So he's not seeking God. Uh, He believes that God is, but obviously he's not diligently seeking him, as we saw from Hebrews 6. So that's a practical atheism. You believe in God, but you don't seek him, so there might as well be no God for for your purposes. Uh, God is in none of his thoughts, so he's not thinking about God. The word there of thoughts could be purposes. God is not in any of his priorities in life. Verse 11, he has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face he will never see. So yeah, I profess the existence of God, but essentially God has no idea what I'm doing and will never hold me accountable. So in that sense, he might as well not exist from my standpoint. Verse 13, why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. So the practical atheist. Uh, We need to be very, very careful that we're always aware that God is present, always aware of who God is, where he is, that is everywhere, and aware of his presence. Otherwise, we're going to live as if there was no God. Uh, What did Nietzsche say? The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who profess Jesus with their lips and deny him with their lives, with their actions. Uh, some, Some insight there, perhaps. When Nietzsche said, God is dead, by the way, he, what he was saying is, look at the people in the German liberal church. Look at the people that even profess God. There's nothing there. They're dead. God is dead. There's, there's nothing lively about Christianity. That's, uh, and so, and again, even in that blasphemous statement, there's a grain of truth about the, the Gentiles blaspheming because of the, the spiritual deadness and practical atheism within the church, Also, thirdly, agnosticism. Agnosticism. People don't say God doesn't exist, but they say, I don't know. The jury's out. I'm not sure God may exist. He may not, but uh, I haven't seen enough evidence, so I'm open. But, uh, you know, it's really up to God to prove himself, or it's up to Christians to persuade me. This is merely an intellectual objection. I'm not against God. I'm not suppressing anything. I'm just, you know, I haven't seen God. I don't I don't know what else to say. I'm I'm not uh, anti-God, but uh, I'm just neutral. Uh, Now, of course, biblically speaking, you can't be neutral. Psalm 19 says every square inch of the creation is declaring God's existence. The heavens, the firmament, uh, the earth, all creation is declaring God's existence. And so this is a mere facade of the agnostic to say it's a cop-out. because it's not intellectual. You're suppressing that revelation in unrighteousness uh, to say, well, I'm just honestly not persuaded is disingenuous. Doesn't mean that your first uh, strategic maneuver is to call them out on that, but you need to keep that in mind as you're dealing with them that they're suppressing that truth. They're just not willing to be as bold about it as the professing atheist they just want to stay away from it and ignore it and keep God at arm's length. And, uh, but once you get down to the root of it, you will discover that these people actually hate God. And when you present who God is and, and what the Bible teaches, they do suppress it in unrighteousness. They don't like it and they don't want it, but they claim they're neutral. Uh, fourthly, you have idolaters. The, the, as we said, the Mr. Potato God religion, where people just mix and match this buffet-style religion to create a God who doesn't remember their sin, or who doesn't bring judgment for sin, a God who affirms them and accepts them, a God who is uh, distant. Uh, you think of deism. Deism is a form of atheism. To say that God exists, and he's the creator, but he just wound up the universe like a, like a watch or like a clock, and he just lets it run out. Um, and he is off in some distant corner of the galaxy or however you want to uh, envision that, but God's not intimately involved in the day-to-day operations of this world. And so that's another way. They'll, they'll acknowledge his existence, but they'll take away his providence, his sovereignty, his imminence. He's transcendent, but he's not imminent. He's not involved. He's not sovereign and accomplishing his purposes. He's disinterested, and uh, essentially the world is the same as if there was no God other than the fact that he created it and set it in motion. So it's people that want to acknowledge the cosmological argument that God is the first cause, but they reject any ongoing sovereign providential involvement of God in the universe. Uh, And and again, there are many different Mr. Potato Gods out there, and people just conform God to the image of man rather than man in the image of God. So these are a, a variety of types of Atheism, if you could say that, self-deceived, truth-suppressing, unbelievers adopting these various perspectives. Now, should we present formal arguments for God's existence? After all, Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God. Uh, why argue for God's existence? The Bible doesn't, people say. The Bible doesn't argue for God's existence, it just asserts God's existence. It assumes that everybody knows that God exists, and it immediately cuts to the chase and says, in the beginning, God, and tells us all about who God is and what God has done. Well, fair enough. I think that's a reminder that we should always start with evangelism and always start with an assumption of the light of nature and confront people immediately with, God has said this. We shouldn't begin arguing for our position. We should declare it. God exists. God has said this. We're all sinners. You're a sinner. You need Jesus. God sent his son. We need to be asserting and assuming God's existence, presupposing God's existence, not neutral regarding God's existence. Uh, However, when we encounter people who deny it, as we saw in 1 Peter 3.15, we need to be ready to give a defense a defense of any aspect of the Christian faith that people deny. Titus 1.9 says that those who are overseers in the church need to be ready to refute the gainsayers, those who oppose the truth, whatever truth it may be. Uh, We see in Isaiah 1.18, the Lord says, come let us reason together, and it's through, through his people. He says, you are my witnesses. He sends us out to reason with people and Uh, to refute errors, including the error that that, uh, professes any of these various forms of atheism. So it's true we shouldn't begin with apologetics and with these arguments necessarily, but we should have them and use them to refute the gainsayers. Another question, are presuppositional arguments guilty of circular reasoning? There are criticisms of presuppositional arguments. Uh, they say, listen, you're assuming what you're seeking to prove. You're setting forth the Christian worldview, or as we said last time, probably better to say, the existence of the God who's revealed in Scripture. You're setting forth Christian theism in that sense, the existence of the Christian God, uh, but you should actually be neutral toward that and then seek to prove that rather than assuming it and then defending it by way of presuppositional arguments. Well, there's a problem with this idea of neutrality. You can be neutral, as Bonson said, regarding the question, is my car in the parking lot? You can be neutral toward that question and it doesn't break down the entire space-time continuum. But you can't be neutral concerning the necessary existence of God himself because that breaks down any hope of using logic, or science, or morality, or anything along those lines. You can't be neutral. And if you say as a Christian that God is your ultimate standard, then if you try to use something else to prove God's existence, what you're doing is you're actually making that other thing the ultimate standard. And so this is why we have to be very careful with evidential arguments to say, well, I believe that the Bible is true because you know, there's this evidence, this archaeologist that I read, okay, but be careful there that you don't make the evidence a higher standard of appeal than God himself. If God is the ultimate standard, then we need an apologetic that, rather than being neutral toward God, recognizes and upholds his ultimate status in the argument itself. Uh, So, to justify your ultimate standard, by appealing to some, someone or something else means is it really your ultimate standard? Okay, you follow that logic. Some truths can only be demonstrated by maintaining the impossibility of the contrary. So if I say A cannot be non-A, the law of non-contradiction or the law of contradiction, depending on how you wanna classify that. If I say that, you can't prove that A cannot be non-A without utilizing the substance of that law in your argument. Assuming and presupposing the law of non-contradiction is required in order to demonstrate the law of non-contradiction, because otherwise you could prove that A cannot be non-A, and then we could infer from that that A can be non-A, you see, because there's no law of non-contradiction. You know, you have to be neutral. Well, you can't be neutral because you can't think without that law. So some truths can only be demonstrated by saying, listen, it's impossible that it could be otherwise. If we don't presuppose the law of non-contradiction, nothing makes sense. So we're gonna agree to presuppose it, otherwise there's no sense uh, reasoning about anything, and all of life is meaningless, okay? So that's the impossibility of the contrary. That's the way we demonstrate the laws of logic. That's the way we demonstrate the necessary existence of God. And then we say, here's the test, because anybody can claim that, oh, you know, this or that is necessary. Okay, well, construct your worldview, set it forth as a holistic entity, and then let's evaluate these various aspects of it. And so when you look at the claim of the existence of God within the context of the Christian worldview, that claim that God exists is internally coherent with the Christian worldview, but none of the other worldviews are able to maintain that consistency in denying the existence of God. And so, you know, particularly atheism, agnosticism, and so on. So this is the argument to refute those views. Uh, it's, it's, It's circular, yes, but when you demonstrate that it's the only claim, the only truth claim concerning God's existence that can maintain the circle in coherence rather than incoherence, uh, then you've demonstrated your point to the impossibility of the contrary. Another question. Are the traditional arguments for God's existence therefore sinful? See, a lot of uh, radical Vantilians are out there, you know, as... as, uh, Carl Bogue of the PCA once said, the beady-eyed Vantillians, okay? I don't think he was a Vantilian, but that's my impression. But there there are some radicalized Vantillians that are out there that are saying, listen, not only is the transcendental argument the most holistically uh, dynamic argument, or it demonstrates the inescapability of God's existence to the in the most effective way in our culture, but they would say, any other argument is autonomous. Any other argument that involves any appeal whatsoever to evidence, or any appeal whatsoever to the light of nature, or the works of God in creation, that therefore any of these other methods are trusting in human reason and experience and and, uh, therefore becoming autonomous rather than trusting in God and appealing to Him as the ultimate standard. Now, that seems plausible at first, but it is in fact contrary to the scriptures and contrary to our confessional standards. Because in principle, these other arguments are not sinful because they appeal to natural revelation, which is from God. How is it autonomous if God says, Romans 1, Psalm 19, Romans 2, 14, that he's revealing himself in creation, conscience, and cognition assuming you use those arguments in a way that's not riddled with neutrality, okay, you're not just putting God on the shelf, but if you use those in a way under the lordship of Christ, sanctifying Christ as Lord, and appealing to these aspects of what God has revealed in nature, how can that be autonomous? In fact, God has made the human conscience for those who don't have a copy of the Bible to function as a law unto itself, Romans chapter 2 uses that phrase of the the unchurched pagan being a law unto himself in a positive way. Somebody doesn't have the Ten Commandments, they don't have the Bible, but God's written enough of that law, the work of the law, on that person's heart as to give them some guidance in the law of God, even in their own uh, conscience, even in their own soul, to guide them and to restrain wickedness in the world thereby. So it's not autonomous if God's word, and certainly as I mentioned, a larger catechism question too, if these things uh, are endorsing appeals to natural revelation, how can it be autonomous? How can it be unbiblical and unconfessional when it's actually the pedigree and the history of the reformed faith that has embraced these things? Another question uh, wrapping up here soon. Is it correct to assert that by nature, all men presuppose and sinfully suppress the entire Christian worldview, including the Trinity, or is this limited to the content of natural revelation? Uh, I'm going to skip this because we dealt with it last time, other than to simply say that this is an unfortunate error with Van Til and Bonson. Uh, You can read this, I have a list of quotes I'm not going to bore you with, but from Bonson's book, Van Til's Apologetic, where both Van Til and Bonson assert that the ontological trinity, the the, uh, triune godhead, is the uh, basis for all epistemology, That, uh, that they include the trinity, they include the entire Christian worldview as that which the unbeliever is suppressing. Even the unchurched pagan, as in Romans 1.18, it's the whole Christian worldview, including the Trinity, especially the Trinity, the way they put it. And we've said that the unchurched pagan cannot suppress what is not revealed to him. So what is it that the unchurched pagan is needing to presuppose to make sense of life? It's the existence of God as he's revealed himself in nature. That's the full extent of how we should use the transcendental argument. We should not say that the whole Christian worldview is demonstrated by the impossibility of the contrary, but rather the existence of God as revealed in nature is necessary and uh, is uh, absolutely necessary to make sense of intelligibility in this world. So that's important. We don't wanna lump too many things in there. We dealt with that last time. Uh, Finally, which theistic arguments are often most helpful in our day? Um, I'm gonna just speed through this. Uh, The teleological appealing to intelligent design is extremely helpful because most people can grasp it and it has an effect upon them. Even Richard Dawkins admitted at face value there appears to be design. And so for most people, this is a way to help reel them back into a consideration of God's existence and the reality of sin. That look at the design, look at what God has made, look at DNA, look at the human eye, look at the ecosystems of of the world, uh, look at the stars above, the earth beneath. Uh, The teleological argument, intelligent design, this has an intuitive force that we should keep that, you know, we need to keep that argument on our tool belt. Presuppositional, I would say, is probably uh, the best for most people that you're going to interact with. It doesn't mean it's the best across the board, we'll leave that as an open question, but for most people you'll encounter in a postmodern American culture uh, where there's such little common ground remaining. I think for those people, this presuppositional argument, the transcendental argument, really cuts to the chase most effectively most of the time to pull a reversal and get their attention back on the gospel. So I would urge you to, to, to view that argument highly and be able to use it in your, uh, in your witness bearing. Now, um, I, I'm going to try to hit some of these practical points to finish off here. Applying the teaching of Scripture to our lives. Atheism is merely the handmaiden of humanism. Atheism will, in my opinion, always be a small subset of the population. We see a rise of atheism and of atheistic, secular humanistic thinking, and atheism is the handmaiden of humanism. So, in other words, what, <clears throat> excuse me, we deny God's existence so that for all practical purposes, we can support the preeminence of man. And so we're denying God's existence. We're cutting God out of everything in our society. God must go. People that believe in God and want to honor God must go. They must be canceled. And we're dethroning God so that we can enthrone man. The goal of atheism is not actually to remove religion, but to set up a new religion of secular humanism in which whether it's individualism or statism, which these two things just fluctuate back and forth, right? Um, Because when you have rampant radical individualism, eventually somebody rises and uh, gains the the support of the masses. And so individualism, statism, it's all an effort to dethrone God and enthrone man. And so we need to understand that. Don't think that our only enemies in this battle are atheists. Our enemies are also those who on the positive side are wanting to replace the absence of God in our society with the preeminence of man. Man Man-made ethics, man-made society, man-made family, uh, individualism, statism on a grand scale. Second application, uh, there is something of atheism in every sin. There's something of atheism in every sin. Uh, There's such a thing as temporary atheism. If you're addicted to pornography, you are a temporary atheist. You're hitting the pause button on God's attributes, his presence, his knowledge of what you're doing, his justice, his wrath, his chastening. You're hitting the pause button on everything you know and believe in God and about God, and you're temporarily an atheist, And that's why you do what you do, and then all of a sudden you come back to your senses and your theology is back on track, and now you feel horrible. But the issue here is that Christian theism and believing in God and diligently seeking God and practicing the presence of God is the solution to fighting sin. Because if you're not clinging to God as real, as present, as all-knowing, as just and holy, if you're not doing those things, then you're going to fall into these sins where you're just temporarily, we'll hit the pause button on God, we'll go do our business, and then, and then we'll come back. And that's just uh, uh, leads many people to hell and many Christians into miserable lives. Thirdly, evangelism and apologetics must address the skeptic's heart that is his mind and his will, his thoughts and desires, not merely his mind. Uh, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but don't be fooled by the skeptic who seems so intellectual and genuine. Deep down, he hates God. The Bible says that. God sees into his heart. We're not judging him. The Bible's judging him. He's suppressing it on on unrighteousness. He has wishful thinking. And so, don't just hit him over the head with that, but strategically operate in such a way that you're not going down these intellectual rabbit trails that he wants you to go down, that you're constantly bringing him back before the holy God who exists and confronting him with the reality of sin in his conscience. Fourthly, more is needed for salvation than a mere belief in God. Jesus said, believe in God you believe in God, believe also in me. We have to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. People who defend theism, but don't do it in such a way as to dovetail and transition into Christian theism and into the gospel, are wasting their time. Uh, We don't appreciate some of the things Bonson and Van Til have said in, in trying to lump everything together, but we do appreciate the fact that whenever Bonson presented these arguments, he would very quickly speak of Christ and the gospel, and he would seek to transition to a message of salvation through faith in Christ. It's not enough to believe that God is. You have to believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him and therefore you need to seek him yourself. We have to bring the offer of the gospel and point to Christ in these interactions with skeptics. Does anyone have any questions? I know we kind of went over there and we started late, and uh, all of those things are pretty typical. Yes? Yes? Stephen Charnock. So The Existence and Attributes of God is a series of sermons by Charnock. It represents the first two volumes of his collected works, but you can find it printed separately. Recently, I think by Crossway, they came out with a really nice edition. Um, there's There's another one put out by Baker in one volume But if you look for Charnock, The Existence and Attributes of God, you'll find it either in two volumes or in one, or if you want to splurge and get the whole set, you can can do that. But um, in there, that first volume, before he gets to God's attributes, which is a classic treatment of it, he deals with a couple things that are relevant here. He deals with practical atheism, and he has a chapter right in there in the introductory portion on spiritual worship, about worshiping God who is spirit, in spirit and in truth. So he deals with the spirituality of God and the spirituality of new covenant worship and of true biblical worship. And those two chapters, uh, practical atheism and spiritual worship, are by far worth the price of the volume. Those are two of the best chapters that you will ever read on theology proper. Anything else? All right, let's pray. Gracious God, enable us to walk up from here and head to our homes this day with an awareness of your presence that you do not forget, but you know all things simultaneously, and you are watching us, you are with us, You are watching over us for good and not for evil if we are your believing people. And help us to be conscious that you are willing and working within us, that we may labor to work out our own salvation, willing and doing, for your good pleasure. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.